Okay, take your Bibles this morning and turn with me back to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. This will be the third lesson in this series, the manifold wisdom of God. I tell you what, it's, it's an amazing and a humbling thing uh, to think and consider that a God who was in need of absolutely nothing, and a God who is absolutely unchanged by anything would determine, according to his sovereign will and purpose, to first of all create this place that we live on, second of all to create man and have chosen, a, 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 and, and that's the thing that just keeps blasting through my mind, I, to choose a multitude of sinners Actually, according to the way Romans chapter 9 is written, just choose a group of individuals. Because it says, for the children being not yet born, neither having do it, done any good or any evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand. It was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. As it's written, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. So that immediately destroys this this false notion or idea or heresy of religious friends, family, and foes that you and I know that say election is God looking down through time and seeing what sinners will do and then based on what he sees sinners doing, then he made his choice. No. That's what what the scriptures teach. Before they had done any good or any evil, just because he is God, he chose a multitude, and then he purposed to fall. I don't understand that. The fall was not a, 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 an accident. He didn't put a perfect man in a perfect garden in a, in a perfect situation in a, uh, the, the righteousness of humanity in a way, it was, and it was such a righteousness, whatever it was, he could still be in the presence of God only for them to accidentally mess up and fall into this thing. Because before he ever created or chose a man or a woman unto salvation, he chose them where? In Christ. Who was Christ? He's the surety. He's the substitute. He's the mediator. He's the representative. We fail. But to envision that, to consider that, that God would, would be so intricate in detail that he would minutely work all things after the counsel of his own will and all of it for one express purpose, to glorify and honor himself. That's what all of it's about. Doesn't have anything to do with me. Doesn't have anything to do with you. It has everything to do with him. To glorify himself is a God who will by no means clear the guilty, but yet at the same time reveal himself in his covenant relationship to his eternal sons and daughters in time in each successive generation. Nothing should be more of a motive for the child of God, one who's been given eyes to see, ears to hear, heart, mind, and will to comprehend, to obey him and honor him and magnify his person and his work than that particular truth. People say, I don't know why he chose you. I don't know either, but I know this what he did. He chose somebody, and he did. And he did it according to his sovereign will and pleasure. 
he was not influenced by anything outside of himself. And that's what Paul says. That, that this, is, this is the mystery. This is the manifold wisdom of God, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. And by world, I, 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 I feel like a, a repetitive idiot, but when he says that God was in Christ reconciling the world, it, it has definers. It has those that set the parameter of who world is. He did not reconcile the whole world. Because if he had reconciled the whole world, the whole world would be saved. Do you not, can you not see that? Well, if you're unregenerate, you can't. You think that's just foolish. That doesn't make sense. Well, the natural man, natural mind, receive not the things of the Spirit of God, neither can he or she know them, because what? They're spirits to discern. We didn't figure this out. I didn't see this when I was a child. Heck, I didn't see this when I was a teenager. I'll go further than that. I didn't even see it when I was preaching another gospel. That God actually reconciled whatever that world is to himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. We're going to talk about that in the worship hour this morning. I hadn't preached a message to you on imputation in a while. I know we touch on it all the time, but I'm going to preach to you again this morning about this thing of imputation, how important it is, how essential it is, how it is the part of the gospel of God's free grace. And if you don't preach out imputation, you've preached another gospel because you've left it in men or women's hands to do something that it's impossible for them to do. We didn't see this on our own. I, I, I wasn't walking around one day and got smart enough that I saw this. God revealed it to us, just like he revealed it to the Apostle Paul. And he says here in verse 7 in our text, in, in uh, Ephesians chapter 3, he says, wherefore, now notice his language here, I was made, you see this, I was made a minister. I have seen so many guys in my lifetime chose the profession to be a pastor. Henry Mahan told me years ago, he said, Richard, if you can ever do, you ever feel yourself that you can do anything else other than preach this gospel, he said, Kenny, go do it. Because he said, you don't have to be a preacher to be a child of God. And I understand that. But listen, I, Kenny can tell you. <laughs> Kenny knew me from back then. And it ain't got nothing to do with whether me being a bad guy or not. I mean, I, it, character and conduct excluded. It ain't got nothing to do with that. But I guarantee you, nobody, I never envisioned when I, I mean you were in high school, that someday I'd be over in Ruston, Louisiana, preaching something that was totally foreign to anything I'd ever been taught in Sunday school, vacation Bible school, taught by my mom, dad, grandma, and grandpas. If you'd have told me that, I'd have said, you have lost your ever-loving mind. And when I came over there back in 1986, I didn't have any concept of where this thing was going to. I, I, thought, I thought I had it all planned out. 
I knew what I thought of Heiko. I thought of Heiko as a stepping stone to get somewhere else because it was an occupation. It was a job. You go to a little church and you get a get enough reputation, you step up to a little bigger church, and my goal was I was trying my dead-level best to get to Mid-American Seminary in Memphis, Tennessee. I wanted to get my master's degree. I wanted to get my doctorate degree, and I wanted to go back to Manny, Louisiana and preach at First Baptist Church in Manny, Louisiana because the only way they would hire anybody, he had to have DR in front of his name, and that's what I wanted to do. It didn't work out that way. God was pleased to reveal himself to me and in me, and it changed everything. And he says here, I didn't just decide I was going to be a minister of the gospel. That word was made, it, it, you write this down. Write down above that word was made, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Because it's the same word. He hath made. Him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So he didn't, he didn't choose man. And listen, no, no men put him in this role. You know, these churches, religious, even reformed churches, they get a guy up that he, he, he some of them are pretty talented speakers. Now they are. And they, they, get, they get caught up in, the, in the, uh, the ability of the speaker, the eloquence of their delivery. And before long, they, think, they tell them, we think you might ought to consider the ministry. And what do they do? They consider the ministry and they get into the ministry. And then they ordain them. You know, there's an ordination service and they put them in the ministry. Paul said, this wasn't this what? God put me in the ministry. And he put me in a ministry for a particular reason. To the, he put me in a ministry according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. And that word power there is the same word that's used over in Romans chapter 10, verse one, Romans chapter 10, Romans chapter 1, verse 16, 17. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. So he said, the same grace that saved me, that power that moved me from death into life, is the same power, the same grace that did what? Put me into this gospel ministry. Look, hold your place there. Turn over to Acts chapter 9. Act, yeah, Acts 9. Foolish men, foolish women talking about, I sought the Lord. You sought a God of your imagination. Now you did. Or you sought the God of your mom and your dad. You didn't seek this God. I'll tell you what, they no person ever of their own free will and accord sought him. I know that. Why? He tells us there's none that seeketh after God. No, not one. Right? He tells us no man, listen to this language, no man can come to me. Except the Father which has sent me, do what? Draw. And that word draw, it actually means drag. It's the same word that's translated. Remember when Paul, Peter, and the other apostles had fished all night long and caught a thing? And the Lord appeared to them, and he told them, he said, let, let your nets down on the right side of the boat. 
And they're like, we, we, we fished all night. We ain't caught anything. He said, do it. And they let the, and it, the nets were so full, they couldn't even pull them into the boat. And it said, Peter dove out of the boat, swam to the shore. And it says that he dragged the nets to shore. What's that? That's physical exertion. And he says, no man can come to me except the Father which has sent me do what? He, he got to make you willing. You won't come. You'll scoff at it. You'll ridicule it. You'll despise it. By nature, you hate it. And here's a man who hated it. Look at, at verse 1, Acts 9. And Saul, and I think it's interesting how the Scriptures present Saul as an unregenerate and after, what is he? He's Paul. Because there's a difference. Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the Lord, against the disciples of the Lord Jesus, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way. Now, what's this way? It's the gospel. That's this way. It's these that preach Christ, His blood, His righteousness is the sinner's only hope that excludes the religion of Judaistic faith and says salvation is in the one who actually accomplished all this that we thought and we, those of us who by God's grace look through to see who? Christ, the promised Messiah. Whether they be of the way, found any in their way, whether they are men or women, that we might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. Does that sound like a man that's seeking the Lord? Does that sound like a man who, in his heart, he has a burning desire to accept Jesus as his personal Lord and Savior? He won't even call it Christ in his gospel. He refers to it if there's any of this, this way. Because, see, they thought... Their way was the right way. And why Solomon told them twice in, in uh, Proverbs 14, Proverbs 16, there is a way that seems right unto man, the end of that way, death. And so Saul of Tarsus knew there was a difference between our way and their way. And so he's going down there to get those that are their way, and he's wanting to bring them up there to sit them down and feed them raw deities, y'all just, and entertain them and love them and try to convince them kindly that they're wrong. No, what's he going to do when he gets them up there? The same thing that they did to Stephen. You either recant or what happens to you. Stephen didn't die because they didn't like him as a person. Stephen died over what he preached that way. You don't, you don't believe that? Go back and read about it in chapter 8. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Who talks to him? Christ does. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he tells Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul had never made any personal affront to the Lord Jesus Christ. He had never laid his hands on Christ personally. He had never persecuted Christ personally and individually. But who had he persecuted? 
He had touched Stephen. He held the coats while they stoned Stephen to death. He had, he had sought letter from the high priest, let me go down to Damascus to the synagogues and get everybody to this way. And so Christ tells him, you touch them, who have you touched? Be careful what you say about God's, I'm talking about the world. Be careful how you deal with God's children. When I think about the way we handle God's children, I always think about the prophet. I can't remember whether it was Elijah or Elisha. Remember, they, they made fun of him over his beard. Those children. God's servant. They just made fun of his beard. What happened to them? Anybody know? God sent a she-bear and killed every one of them. The kids, children, for doing what? Mocking his servant. Be careful what you think and say against God's elect. Because <laughs> you're touching the apple of his eye. That's what he's saying to Saul. You've touched mine. And in touching mine, what have you done? You've persecuted me. You've touched me. And he said, who art thou, Lord? And he said, the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It's hard for thee to kick against the goads, the pricks. And notice the difference. Now, he's he bold when he goes into that high priest to get that letter. Give me a letter. I'm going down there and get these people. Sweetly loving Jesus speaks to him. And what happened? He trembling and astonished said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? The Lord said to him, rise and go into the city and it shall be told thee what thou must do. It doesn't say what you make up your mind whether you're going to do it or not. He said, you're going to be told what you must do. The men which journeyed with him stood speechless hearing a voice. But seeing no man, and Saul arose from the earth. When his eyes were open, he saw no man, but the, they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, neither did he eat or drink. So here's a man, hated God, hated his Christ, hated the gospel. God meets him in the road, changes his heart, mind, soul, and understanding. Tells him, what you going to do for me? And sends him to a place and says, you wait. I'm going to send you somebody. And there was a certain disciple, verse 10, at Damascus named Ananias. To him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias, and he said, behold, I'm here, Lord. The Lord said to him, arise and go into the street which is called Straight and inquire in the house of Judas, one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he prayeth. And has seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming to him, putting his hand on him that he might receive sight. Now, this is God working with two people now. He sent Paul, Saul, to a place to wait, and then he appears to Ananias, the messenger, to go to him. Notice how Ananias responds. And Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard many things of this man, how much evil he hath done to the saint, to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priest to bind all that call on thy name. He's afraid. He thinks, this guy, if he gets his hands on me, where am I going? But the Lord said unto him, go thy way. Now listen to this language here. For he is a chosen vessel unto me 
to bear the, my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. How'd you like to be the messenger that's got to go down to a guy that's already killing Christians and be the one that tells him God's chose you to preach this message that you hate <laughs> to the Gentiles who you hate and despise? And then you're going to suffer tremendously for it. How'd you like to deliver that message? But see, Ananias, he's not afraid of men because who's his commander? So what does he do? Ananias went. He did what the Lord said, and he entered into the house and said, Brother Saul, this lets me know already what's already occurred. This man's already been regenerated. This man believes the gospel. This man has heard, listen, he's heard the gospel from who? Where'd he get his gospel from? From the Lord. Where'd you get yours from? Huh? I heard it from Henry Mahan, but I got it from who? See, that's a big deal different. The Lord, even Jesus, that appeared unto thee in the way as thou camest. And this has got to be an astonishment to Saul of Tarsus, that this guy who's been miles away knows about something that happened out on the road outside of Damascus. He told him, the, the, the Lord appeared to you. <laughs> he sent me that thou might receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. Immediately, therefore, there fell from his eyes as it had been scales, and he received sight therewith and rose and was baptized. And when he had received meat and was strengthened, then was Saul certain days with the disciples which were in Damascus. And notice what he does immediately. Straightway. Didn't go to seminary. Hmm? Nobody trained him what to preach. He'd been preaching another way, Kenny, hadn't he? Straightway, what did he preach in the synagogue? Legalism. Moral sincerity. Change in character and conduct. What do you, he preached Christ in the synagogues, telling them what? He is who? He's exactly who he said he was. He's the Son of God. All that heard him were amazed and said, Is not this he that destroyed them which call on this name in Jerusalem and came hither for that intent that he might bring them bound unto the chief priest? Everybody says, This guy is a killer. But he was a chosen vessel. God made him. You hear me? God made him an apostle. God made him the apostle to who? To the Gentiles. Specifically. Look at verse 8 in our text. Turn back over to Ephesians 3. Unto me, who am... Less than the least of all the saints is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. You know, you think about this. Here's a man that had a reputation was respected and feared by those around him. 
who was the last of the apostles to be called. And yet, how does he describe himself? I am less than the least of all the saints. You think he was, you think that was false humility? Huh? I know Henry in his commentary wrote this. He said, the greatest saints are usually the most humble. Greatest saints are usually the most humble. And this is the verse that he referenced in his commentary. Listen to you. Paul writes, For I say through the grace given unto me. Paul says in another place, everything I do, how do I do it? By the grace of God. Paul said, nothing has come out of my life. Nothing. All of it was born from where? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he says, For I say through the grace given unto me to every, now listen to this, to every man that is among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly according as God hath dealt to every man. And every man here is what? Everyone is children. Every one of those redeemed. Because see, all of this in Romans 12 has got to be interpreted in the right light of what's already been said up to this point. So the every man are who? The every man are those all things work together for good to them love God to them with the call according to his purpose. The all men are what? It's those elect that are talked about in Romans 9, 10, and 11. The elect are who? The, the, every man here that he's talking about are those who whosoever shall, the whosoever. Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. He said that God gives this grace to every man that dealt faith, had dealt to every, every one of his, what? The measure of faith. Why? Why the measure of faith given to every one of us according to God's purpose and plan? For as we have many members in one body, all members have not the same office. So we being many are one body in Christ. And everyone members one of another. Well, every, we, we need every member of this body. He's, he's designed this body. He's putting the members into his body. We're not. He's having them as he sees fit. And every one of them has a specific role. And that's what he's saying here. I mean, you think about it. The, the Apostle Paul describes himself in this passage in our text as less than the least of all saints. And th that original word translated by that phrase, the lowest, this phrase, less than the least of all saints, you know what it actually means? This is the definition of that phrase, less than the least of all the saints, one word in the original, it means the lowest of the low. In other words, you go down as far as you can go, I'm there. I used to say foolishly, I, I can remember saying it when we were back, I was back out at hiking, it's false humility, and I've heard other men say it too. But, you know, where Paul said, uh, uh, he says, 
uh, how, how do you state it in First Timothy? He says, uh, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. And I used to have, I can remember saying this clear as day before the Lord taught me. I'd say, Paul didn't know about me. It's like, it's like we get in a fight about, let's see who can be the worst. When Paul's writing under the inspiration of God, the Holy Spirit, Kenny, and when he said, I'm the chief of sinners, what, what did God, God the Holy Spirit didn't write, wrote, inspired him to write that? What does it mean? He was the worst. The worst of the worst. Why? He was a moral guy, kept the law. According to the righteousness required in the law, what? Blameless. But here's the thing. All of that blamelessness that he had stacked up, that he thought he had kept the law, what was that against? I've said it for years. There's no murdering, lying, rapist anywhere thinks that they're murdering and lying and raping gets them to heaven. But there are a multitude of folks out there this morning sitting in churches holding their little Bibles in their hand, listening to prayers, going to sing hymns in a little while, and get their hands up in the air, whatever they think's involved in worship, that they think that all that stuff recommends them to God. And folks, we were one of them at one time. You say, I wouldn't. You've never seen anything. He sees himself as the lowest of the low. Now listen to it. He certainly wasn't the least in knowledge or ability. This dude was smart before the Lord converted him. And I tell you what, sometimes an education is a good deal. You know, that you have some... This man, this man understood the Old Testament. It's at least analytically he understood it. He'd miss Christ and all that. But I guarantee you that sucker was well rehearsed in everything scriptural. Because remember, when we think about everything scriptural back then, what was it? It was the Old Testament. And we know that he spoke in such a way that Peter said of Paul's ministry, he said, he speaks a lot of things that are hard to be understood, which many have wrestled to their own destruction. But when Paul talked about his delivery of the message, how did he say he came? Paul, Peter says, he speaks things that are deep. Paul says, I came to you not in the wisdom of man's words. I came to you in what? Much weakness and trembling. Peter sees him as a giant. And Paul sees himself as what? A mouse. He wasn't less, the least of them in zeal. And he certainly wasn't the least of them in zeal of service. Because I tell you what, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 8 through 11, that he was the last of the apostles, but even though he was the last of the apostles, you know what he said of himself? He said, I outworked them all. I outdid every one of them. But he, he didn't, what did he say? Yet not I, but the grace of God in me. See? Wasn't him doing it. The Lord chose to use this man. I mean, you think about it. Peter gets credit for being the Pope. Peter wrote 1st, 2nd Peter. John wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. 
How many books did Paul write? I think 20. I think 20. I might be wrong on that. I think it's 20 epistles. Two-thirds of the New Testament written by this dude. Why? This is the one God purposed to use for that. But he looked at it, what? I, he said, I'm, I'm the least... I'm, I'm the less, I, I, I'm less than the least. I'm the lowest of the low. Why? It's in light of his past. He understood what he had done. I, I think, uh, turn, uh, turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 1. You know, I've, I've done some dastardly things in my life. Things that I wouldn't want anybody, I, I'm thankful to my God that my history, both past, present, and future, for the most part, you know what? It's, it's known only to my God and, and me. Huh? Aren't you? Well, you want me to tell you the thing that is the most heartrending to me? Everything that I did before I was saved, thinking that I was leading men and women to a God that I believed and trusted, which was another God. And another Christ. Huh? Making disciples. Putting pelts on the wall. That's what it was about. I got another one. It was all about how many, how many have you baptized? And I see the tragedy of that is most I, well, not most of all of those disciples I made when I was reformed, they're all gone. I'm friends with some of them on Facebook now, and they're members of cowboy churches and every other kind of church and don't have any... Do it ain't about doctrine. It's about who can play the guitar and sing and dance the best. No concern about gospel. It's just make you feel good. Listen, I am not about making you feel good. The gospel's not about making you feel good. The gospel's not about entertaining you. I've had so many people through the years, what do y'all do for the kids? Same thing we do for you. Preach the gospel to them. Because that's the only thing that's going to be of any value. That's the only thing God uses to call his people out. Look here at 1 Timothy chapter 1. Look at verse 5. He says... Now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. <clears throat> From which some having swerved have turned aside unto vain jangling, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. But we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully. Therefore, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers and of fathers, murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men stealers, for liars, for perjured persons. And if there be anything, uh, any other thing that is contrary to to sound doctrine according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which was committed to my trust. So he says, everything that we measure, what do we measure it under? This glorious gospel of our blessed God. 
not under the law, under the glorious gospel of our God. Notice what he says in verse 12, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful. And there's that word we started off with in, in verse 7. He made him, he put me in the ministry. You see that? And notice how he describes himself. Who was before a blasphemer. A persecutor. And injurious. Injurious to who? The church. But I obtained mercy. Isn't that an amazing thing? A guy that was a before a blasphemer of God, persecutor, and injurious to God's church, he obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly and unbelief. And the grace of our Lord Jesus was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying, worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Howbeit for this cause I obtained mercy, that in me first... Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to everlasting life. Paul's saying this, if God can save me, who was a blaspheming, murderous, injurious individual to the church of God, there's nobody beyond it. Huh? There's hope for anybody. Because if could, The only one that could dig Saul of Tarsus out of this, who had to do it? And I'm going to tell you, we had our feet planted pretty firmly where we were at religiously too at some point in time. And I, I can't, I, I used to try to convince people to become Calvinists. You can't convince somebody to believe the gospel. You can present it to them. That's all you can do. It takes the power of God to make a man or woman see this. I, I can't do that. <laughs> it's not within my scope. That's above my pay grade and every other person's pay grade. All we can do is be ready to give an answer. Tell men and women who Christ is, what he did, what he actually accomplished. And see, here's the thing. Those who are, are truly forgiven much, you know what they're going to do? They're going to love much. I didn't, we're not going to go read it, but go read, go read Luke chapter 7, verse 39 through 48, where that uh, Paul was, uh, our Lord was in uh, Philip, yeah, Philip's house. Remember the Pharisee Philip? And he was sitting there and a woman who was a sinner, it says that, a woman who was a sinner came in. And she began to weep on his feet, began to dry his feet with her hair. And she broke an alabaster box of ointment on his feet, which was a, a lot of money. And Philip said within himself, if this man knew who she was, what she was, he wouldn't even let her touch him. That's how most religious people are. They see themselves better, therefore, if we don't touch it, don't handle it, it won't affect us. Our Lord immediately responded to his thoughts. And he said, Philip, I got something to say to you. And he said, say on. And he told him a story. He said there was a man that owed two pence, and another one owned 200 pence, or I don't forgot the pence. There's a, there's a whole lot of difference. It's a, it's a dollar versus a thousand dollars, is what it's talking about. And it says, after a while, 
neither one of them, he continually told them, and that's what the law does. It tells you what, you owe a debt you cannot pay. To one guy, it was a dollar. To another guy, it was $10,000. But neither one of them could pay. And he said, finally, ultimately, he said, he forgave them both. And he looked at Philip and he said, Philip, he said, which one of these two do you suppose loved the most? And Philip, and this shows his mindset. This is a lost man's thing. He said, he didn't say, I know. He said, I suppose the one who was forgiven the most. And he said, Philip, I've been here in your house. Came here, and it was a custom back then. When somebody came into your house, you washed their feet. They'd been outside. You didn't want the dirt in. You didn't want the dirt on your friend's feet. You let them have a basin to wash their feet. You gave them a kiss on the cheek, a greeting. And he said, I've been in your house. You hadn't washed my feet. You hadn't, you hadn't given, given me a kiss. He said, but this woman who is a sinner, who's at my feet, what's she done? And he said, her sins, which are many, and they were. He said, they're forgiven. And the thing is, out of that whole deal, they, their thoughts were, how can this guy forgive sin? <laughs> she, was there, she was there because she knew who her Redeemer was. He had drawn her to himself. This was not an accident that this woman came in here. None of these things in the, in, that our Lord did were on accident. This was, one of it, this was one of those lost sheep of the house of Israel that he drew to himself. Because she had been forgiven much, what did she do? She loved much. I, one of my favorite verses is Psalm 130, verse 3 and 4. Lord, if thou shouldest mark my iniquity, who stand? But there's forgiveness with you that you may be feared, reverenced. See, when you see what it took to put away your sins, you, you reverence this God. I mean, you do. Before, it's just it's kind of a haphazard thing between me and my God. You know, we're trying, I'm trying my best, and he's going to reward me for my good efforts. But when you see, when you see him who your sins caused to be pierced, required his vicarious law-keeping and his uh, substitutionary death, to put away your sins. You see that everything that you deserve fell on him and everything he earned and merited by his obedience unto death is given to you by grace. I don't have to get up here and threaten you to get you to come to church or give your money or tell others about him. Why? You know what it takes to put sin away because your sins have been put away. Therefore, what do you do? You tell others about it. See, Paul's privilege, his privilege was to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. God privileged a former idolater. He was an idolater. Who was he wor What idol was he worshiping? Jehovah. He called, that was his God. He privileged a former idolater to preach and to make known to other sinners what? The unsearchable riches of Christ. His person, the perfection of both natures is both God and man. To preach out, as Paul preached out, the riches of Christ's offices, all of them invested in him, is our prophet, is our priest, and is our king. 
And he was chosen by our God to preach out Christ's glorious work of redemption and glorifying the Father in the salvation of a multitude of guilty, hell-deserving sinners. And see, these riches are unsearchable because throughout all eternity, we'll continue to enjoy and experience and see more and more of the value and the substance of these riches. And the thing is, God puts this vast treasure, what does he put it at? In earthen vessels. Why? That the excellency of the glory might not be in the vessel. Who's it in? It's in Christ. We'll stop right there and we'll come back and pick up verse 8 next Sunday. You're dismissed to worship. I appreciate your presence.